Our scripture reading today, brothers and sisters, is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. And our sermon title today is The Dwelling Place of God. This is the Lord's word. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his holy word. Community. A place where people can belong a place where a people have a stake in something or someone, or quite briefly, a place to call home amongst people who are like-minded, or perhaps someone who simply understands the way I think. Community is a buzzword in our culture today, and community is something that will never, ever go away. Whether we call it friendship, whether we call it family, we were created to need one another. We were created to have fellowship with other people who were created in the image of God. The church is no different. God made the church not so that individuals can sit in the pews by themselves, worshiping God on their own, to find God in the midst of their own individual hearts. But God made church, those who are called out of darkness into the light, to know one another, to love one another, to be safe with one another, that our hearts can be revealed about our struggles, 
about our sins. And at the same time, our hearts long not just to be heard. We long to hear the hearing words of brothers and sisters who will rebuke us and show us that Christ has died for us and our sins and our worries and that Christ is the answer to all that we seek. In our passage today, we see Jesus making a new community by his blood. We see Paul explaining this community to the people for them to understand that all who believe in Jesus, in this church at Ephesus, all have equal standing before the Lord. That their relationship has changed from being strangers and foreigners to becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. Historically, there was a huge separation between what we call the Gentiles and the Israelites, or the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews were the ones who had the promises of God. They were the ones who had the, the covenants of God. They were called the sons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Jacob. They were the ones who God had promised that through them, all the nations would be blessed. The Gentiles were outsiders. They did not know the God, Yahweh. They did not have the promises of God. They were treated as outsiders until perhaps they became what we call God-fearers. They saw the God of Israel and they said, I want to worship that God, for I see how that God has been faithful to Israel. And so they go worship. But they would not worship in the inner courts. Oh no, that would be too close. They would worship in their outer courts. Because they were Gentiles, you see. They were not permitted to be as close to God as the Jews were. But even some of these God-fearing people could, could somehow that they could somehow come closer to the Lord. They would. They would desire so. Now when Jesus came, things changed dramatically. What was interesting was when Jesus came, he first went to the Jews. And he said to them, listen, I have come to fulfill all the covenants and promises that have been made. All you need to do is to know that I am the fulfillment. Believe in me. Repent of your sins and you shall have eternal life. Jesus came to fulfill what was promised to the Israelites, that they would get first chance or first stab, if I could put it that way, at redemption. 
And if we follow Jesus' journey through the New Testament, we see that he slowly, slowly leaves Jerusalem and goes to the outskirts, goes to Samaria, goes to where the Gentiles live. And he would visit the synagogues first, but he always had time for those who are outsiders. And he offered that same gospel, that same means of salvation to them as well. Now we know the rest of the story that through the death of Jesus Christ, all peoples, whether Jew or Gentile, can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your history, your background. All that matters is that you proclaim the name of Jesus. And not only do you become his son and daughter, but more importantly, you become a part of his family. It is why in verse 15, Paul says, what did Jesus do? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, what? One new man, one new church, one new expression of community in the place of two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace. That he might reconcile the both both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul wanted to make sure that these people understood that when the body of Christ came together, whether Jew or Gentile, they were not to judge anyone on the basis of their history or their merit but simply judge everyone, simply whether they believed in him or not. And once they say they believed in him, you're in. There was no initiation. There is no hazing process. All you needed to do was to confess with your heart that you are a sinner before the Lord, that you believe in Christ Jesus, and that you wanted to follow him and be with his people. If it was only that easy in other aspects of life, but it is that easy and simple in the church of God. The purpose of Jesus' salvation was not simply individualistic, but it was communal. That Jesus did not come here simply to save you as an individual so that you can be happy with your life and how things are going, um, in in what direction that your life may be going. Let me tell you, if that's all that Jesus is to you, just how he can help me and how he can help me grow and how he can help me to be the best person, even best 
Christian I can be, then you've missed the point of what God is doing. There's nowhere in Scripture where God says, when you become a Christian, all you need to do is pitch a tent in the woods, get your flashlight out, get your Bible, pray, and live there for three years, and I'll be with you, and you'll grow in your faith to me. There's just nowhere in the Bible about that. There's nowhere in the Bible about an individual simply growing in his faith apart from the community of God. And so if you want to grow individually as a Christian in your faith, to say that means that I want community, whether you know it or not. To say I want to know God, and say I, but I don't want community, does not fit with what Scripture teaches. It never has, and it never will. Even separating groups from groups, Gentiles and Jews. People perhaps, you know, you know, I, you know when I was uh, growing up, there was this thing amongst Korean people that if you were born in a Korean, if you were born in a Christian family, you had a special blessing. But if you were came to Jesus later on in your life, well, you're blessed too, but you're, you're a little bit far behind. No, there's, there's none of that. We can't separate as individuals, and we can't even separate as groups. There's only one measuring stick. Again, to which we can measure our faith and to measure one another. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Can you imagine the church that God is building? It's built up of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets and the work that they laid down as well. And to build this building made up of people like you and I, the cornerstone is Christ Jesus. And I know we have at least one architect here. That first stone is put there. And what happens? Every other stone, every other person is measured against that stone. If, if you measure it and it doesn't fit, well, you've got to chop that stone, you throw it away, you find another stone. But the measurement by which we as a church are allowed to be a part of one body is that cornerstone. And so here's a charge to you, brothers and sisters. Number one, if you are a member of this church, And you see other people who are members. Your duty is to look at them and measure them against Christ and the teachings that we have in Scripture. 
And if you know your scriptures well, you'll know that the only thing that you can say is, here is a woman, here is a man who has confessed with their mouth that they are a sinner before the Lord and they need Jesus. That they too have their good days and their bad days. And that they need me to remind them that Jesus is always present. And I need them to remind me that that same Jesus is present as well. You see, the analogy here is the structure that is being built up. Again, it's not an individual with a, with a tent out there, a one-person tent, or a two-person tent. But it's the whole body of Christ being built up together. Second point, which is important. Look at verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One more time. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If we read scripture from beginning to the end, there's a question that um, that each writer has to answer. The question is this. Where does God dwell? Where is God's presence? Because that's where I want to be. In Genesis, the answer in the beginning was he would come dwell in the garden with Adam and Eve and walk amongst them. And so the garden was the place where God would dwell, to have fellowship with him. We learn later on that when Adam and Eve are kicked out, the question persists, where is God's presence? Where will he dwell? And we get simply what we call theophanies. God would simply appear here and there to individuals, but he wasn't dwelling anywhere yet. He appeared to Abraham. He would appear to Moses. But God's desire was to have a dwelling place amongst his people so the people could worship him, see him and worship him, and to know that God was with them. And so you remember, after the, the Dead Sea crossing, they, they wandered in the desert and they, they built a temporary home for the Lord, the tabernacle. They would move it from place to place. And every time they would set it up, the, 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 the presence of God would come down and dwell with them. And all of Israel that would encamp around it would see God's presence and rejoice that their God was with them. It wasn't until David came to power as a king that God finally told, well, not 
told David, and eventually his son Solomon completed the temple. And the temple of God in Jerusalem is where God dwelled. And all the Israelites would come to bring sacrifices to worship him. You see, where God dwelled was where there was safety, where God would protect his people. It's where there's shalom or peace, where that's where sacrifices were made. And it's where there was knowledge of self. For when God appears, you know who you are. You know you're not God. You know God is God. And then we know later on that the temple was destroyed. And a second temple was built. But that second temple was still inferior. And a question persisted. Where's God? I want to see God. I want to be with God. Brothers and sisters, this isn't simply an academic question in Scripture. It's a question of your heart. And whether or not the presence of God moves you, encourages you. Perhaps for some of you, it's, it's not God. Perhaps for some of you, it's, it's the presence of, I don't know, some celebrity in your midst. Perhaps for some of you, it's having that special person in your life who's, who's always there with you. But the presence of someone who loves you and the presence of someone who has, who has power to protect you, the presence of someone who can forgive you, the presence of someone who can rule over you, well, wow, it's something we all desire. And God is asking you to say, I've been seeking these things in the presence of other people. I need to find the God who can love me, rule over me, forgive me, and speak true things in my life. And so the Old Testament ends. And the question is still, where is the presence of God? The second temple is destroyed. Where can we find God? And we see that all the promises of the Old Testament come down to the presence of one man. That's Jesus. Where can we see the presence of God during that time? Only in one place, Jesus. Can you imagine? That's like a, that's every, the, the presence of God is localized in this singular entity called Jesus Christ in this one man. Walking around Fully God, fully man, walking. That's the presence of God. 
No temple. No nothing. Just the person of Jesus himself. And then what happens? Jesus dies on the cross. Resurrected. Goes to heaven. Sends down his spirit amongst us. And the question arises again. Where does God dwell? God dwells in us as individuals when we believe in Jesus. But even more, when we look at verse 22, God's dwelling dwelling place lives amongst the believers and their interactions of love with one another. It is when we love each other with the love of Christ that we see the presence of Jesus alive and well. It is when we are able to confess our sins with one another and to encourage one another in our faith with the Lord that Jesus' power and presence is found. It's not simply when we just get together and eat food. That's not what it's talking about here. It's not when we simply get together and watch a movie. It's when we read scripture together. It's when we pray together. It's when we encourage one another that the presence of God is shown. To the college students, I want to encourage you and discourage you at the same time. But also to our young adults as well. There's this phenomenon that goes on of of what I call um, quasi-community, quasi-church community. And you see this happening when people go to these huge mega-churches that oftentimes they're too scared to go as individuals because it's it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. I've I've been to one of these big churches and you're just like in and out. And so what they start doing is they start finding three or four friends and say, hey, let's go to this church together. And so four or five of them will go to this church, they'll go to church, they'll worship, and then they'll leave together. They'll go and they'll leave together. But they never really do church. They hear a message perhaps. But those three or four friends, if you were to ask them, are you rebuking one another? Are you encouraging one another? Are you praying together? Are you guys seeking to serve that church together? They will say to you, no, (laughs) we just go. Jews, Gentiles, Four people going, doing what they want, and coming out. The presence of God cannot grow in that. And then the longing and the peace that you want in your life cannot be fostered in that. 
but the Lord enjoins us to build this thing together as a dwelling place for God. That through His Spirit, He would build this. That all of us would be eager to see God's presence here. Today we celebrate communion. And communion is always twofold. It's a celebration of our individual faith that God has given us. No doubt about that. But it's also a celebration of this local church that God has given us as well. You cannot separate those two. It's always both and. And when we partake of this together, we are celebrating what God is doing here. Because we take it with our brothers and sisters. And we seek to encourage one another in, our, in faith. For those of you here who are visiting, perhaps you're looking for a church. I would say to you, re- refrain from taking. Don't take right now. You may say, but why? I, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. I, I know Jesus. I just don't have a church yet. I go, bingo. Bingo. There's nothing magic here. But I would say to you here instead, don't take this, but go to the Lord in your heart and say, Lord, give me a community, a church, where I can share communion with brothers and sisters and really mean it. Give it, give me a community so that when I take communion, I may receive the full blessing from you. That not only have I been saved by you individually, but you saved me to a church where your dwelling place resides. That's where the power of this sacrament lies. Brothers and sisters, we are the dwelling place of God. Brothers and sisters, let us fight to build together. Brothers and sisters, the bad times will come. The good times will be here too. Let's fight together. Let's not look for something that comes in our time, but comes in the Spirit's time. Let us be faithful to our God, for He has surely been faithful to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you, Lord, for this time together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord God, bless this church, Lord Jesus. Bless Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church, Lord, that we may be salt and light, Lord, to a world that is in need of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.